Support for AHLA comes from Clearwater, the leading provider of enterprise cyber risk management and HIPAA compliance software and services for healthcare organizations, including health systems, physician groups, and health IT companies. Our solutions include our proprietary software as a service-based platform, IRM Pro, which helps organizations manage cyber risk and HIPAA compliance across the enterprise, and advisory support from our deep team of information security experts. For more information, visit clearwatercompliance.com. Good morning. I'm Wes Morris with Clearwater. Uh, I am the Managing Principal Consultant, and I am here today uh, on the AHLA podcast to talk with Joy Easterwood of Johnson & Pope uh, out of the Tampa Bay area. And our subject today is going to be the tools that people should be considering for managing access to uh, uh, protected health information and the rights of patients and individuals uh, to receive that access. Um, Joy, would you take a moment and introduce yourself and tell us, uh, tell the audience what you would like them to know about you? Sure. Uh, first, good morning. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm Joy Easterwood. I'm an attorney with Johnson Pope. We're based out of Tampa, Florida. Um, I'm one of many healthcare attorneys, and um, I spend a lot of time in the the HIPAA and the general data and privacy and security space. Um, I do a lot of advising on agreements for clients, making sure that they're compliant um, with all healthcare regulations, but especially when we get into the health IT realm. And I help people on a day-to-day basis as far as setting up and implementing uh, data privacy and security compliance programs, managing day-to-day questions, and of course, the the fun times and breach and incident response as well. Um, And before I went into private practice, I spent a number of years um, in-house with a large health system where I was a, a counsel and a privacy officer um, so responsible for, again, implementing and, and really getting um, privacy and security practices um, into place and the living and breathing compliance program, uh, and also in the health plan space as well before that, again, both as a, a privacy um, officer and attorney. And so, you know, I, I love to speak on these topics and um, spend time trying to help people think about the things and, and advise clients in ways that lead them to a space where they're pretty comfortable that they're compliant. Um, they understand what the current focus uh, of, you know, privacy and security compliance is, you know, not just with breaches, Wes, and <laughs> um, we can't forget about that in ransomware attacks, but there's a very large movement happening, right? It's been right. happening um, related to balancing the concern of privacy with also recognizing that individuals have a right to access their information uh, and that the Office for Civil Rights is is taking that very seriously and has continued even through COVID um, to seek, you know, and enforce the guidance that they've issued on that topic. Right, right. Yeah, looking back over time, well, first of all, you and I have known each other for some time uh, in some of those other earlier roles of yours. And, and so it's really a pleasure to be able to spend a little time with you this morning uh, going over some of these topics. Um, so for um, when, we, when we look back, we know that access has been a long-term problem. 
Um, it's been one of the top five investigated issues in healthcare for pretty much the life of HIPAA. Uh, it, it keeps showing up on the board every year. I think last year it was like number three uh, of the most investigated issues. So, so obviously this is something that has been a long-term long issue, but we really saw emphasis on it by the OCR starting in about September of 2018, I think it was, when they issued the first of what are now 18 uh, cases against uh, uh, covered entities for failing to provide access. And I, I recall that that first case involved information that may not have been fully recognized and understood uh, to be part of the designated record set. What are your thoughts around how we are addressing uh, as one of the first tools in this bucket, how we're addressing the issue of the designated record set and understanding where our information actually should be residing and be uh, captured from. That's a great question. And also because today we're talking about tools uh, to help our clients, right? right. Um, comply with regulations and then guidance and then more guidance that um, there is an expectation that we comply with. And so one of the best sources um, of that information and about how we can help our clients posture themselves best um, with respect to, you know, ensuring that they're doing things that are meeting those regulatory expectations is looking at the resolution agreements um, that are available publicly on the OCR's website and looking at the things that um, the OCR wanted to see um, covered entities adjust or implement to address the concern. And again, I think it's important to highlight because we all interact with clients that are really scared of breaches, right? So they've implemented these things um, that might be overly restrictive and missing that that part of the HIPAA rules, right, about making sure that individuals have a right to access their information. So we see, you know, unreasonable barriers. I mean, that's a term that's used a lot as well. Um, but to your point, Wes, you know, you can't ensure that you're honoring individuals' rights with respect to access to their designated record set unless you know what that designated record set is and you define it. So one of the things um, you know, that I, I work closely with clients on when we update policies, right? Because we wanna be sure that people have a, uh, not just policies that are on the shelf, but that they can implement these things. And a designated record set that uh, brings everybody to the table, right? And you need clinical teams to be part of that, to understand you know, outside of the electronic medical record, because we know, <laughs> You know, we know that's the electronic medical record. Clearly, there's access rights around that. But are there other pieces, maybe from historical systems or paper records? Um, because remember, you know, we're looking back as well um, with respect to somebody's designated record set and really specifying uh, in the policy or procedure some type of document that that workers or the workforce can use um, and follow with respect to, if I get a record request, um, here are the pieces of the designated record set that I need to be sure are part of this record. Because we see sometimes either a lack of understanding or disorganization. And so 
people send out records, maybe they're doing it within the time frame <clears throat> that's required under HIPAA and state law, um, but they're missing parts of it, or they're telling somebody that, you know, you're not entitled to that document. Um, and so that policy, um, to your point, that encompasses all of those kind of outliers, right, <laughs> that need to be produced with the, the, you know, bulk record from what's now in the EMR, um, and then making sure that the people that are managing those requests on the front end know how to respond to individuals. So just telling people no is really a bad idea unless they've talked to the right people and made sure that they're compliant with the HIPAA rules um, and following, for example, you know, denial of access requirements. Mm -hmm. um, those type of things and that they're not telling somebody they're not entitled to something when they actually are. Um, and so I think it's that policy to your point. And then that kind of coaching with our clients, you know, it, especially if your clients are the clinician, right? But it's other office staff that will manage those access requests. Right. Hey, before <laughs> you tell somebody no, let's sit down, look at the request and make sure, you know, we have all the parts of the record and that um, we're, we're responding correctly. Right, right. Because when we think about that, that term designated record set, it's not just the clinical records. It is also things like billing records. It's any of those records that are used to make uh, a decision about the individual. And that can get pretty wide ranging and be pretty varied from organization to organization. Would you agree with that? I do. And, and I think that, you know, there's, there, there's the part that you've highlighted too, you know, any other documents that are used for decision-making about the individual. So, you know, there are radiology images and reports. There are other types of monitoring things where a clinician then comes to a clinical decision about it. Um, you know, what's the process for getting those things into the record, especially if they're tied to a device, for example. Um, but clinical photography is another one that comes up a lot, right? So somebody's reviewing um, an image and, and, you know, it's HIPAA, but that can also cause issues um, with respect to litigation and subpoena requests. So it's really important to know um, that we're not just talking about the electronic medical record, that that defined term is much broader. And that in a lot of states, there's also an expectation that uh, under applicable licensure rules, you know, that clinicians are keeping a complete record as well. So it's multi-layered. It, it really is. It really is. I've spent the last several months as part of a task force with uh, uh, AHIMA, uh, the Electronic Records, Health Records Association, and EMEA, uh, exploring this subject of the designated record set and how it ties to another subject, and that is the CARES Act. Uh, or sorry, the CARES Act and information blocking uh, requirements. And uh, we have been, you know, preparing. Uh, information to provide to ONC and OCR to help them to see where the problem is in the industry as well. So this is not just something that is happening in any one facility. This is a national level issue and conversation, I think, that we're trying to ensure that 
the, the guidance and advice that we're giving the industry as a whole is consistent and helps them to better recognize and address these kinds of things uh, most effectively. So uh, this, this, this conversation today just really continues to add to all of this, I think. Um, yeah. Well, I'll just say on that point that, you know, it's not just about, you know, new ways to get in trouble, right? No. The goal behind everything is that patients, honestly, we all know whether you're clinical or not, that they have better outcomes um, if, if those that are treating them or managing their care have access to all of their records. You know, you want to be sure that important information isn't left out. So, you know, a lot of people will talk about a lot about regulations upon regulations, but ultimately, um, in a lot of ways, the focus on this topic makes sense uh, to try to have better outcomes for patients by making sure that their records are accessible um, and complete for treating providers um, and that they have insight into their own records so that they can better manage their own health care. Right, right. You know, one of the things that I have long seen as a concern in our industry, and, and I mean, since I started doing this in 2003, uh, is, is the issue around uh, organizations not understanding the difference between an authorization and an access request. Can you talk to that? I will. And this is one of those things where you know, I find that it's, it's not crystal clear. And, you know, I typically, if I see people that are commonly just requiring everybody to sign an authorization form um, when they want access to their own records, it's not that they're not um, trying to comply, right? Um, obviously, I, I think that there's a thought that that is easier from an operational perspective. But when we're looking um, at these types of things and, and helping clients become compliant, you know, with respect to the access guidance, that's kind of one of the, the first things to look at um, and making sure that their policies are very clear, right? Um, that an individual, you know, you can require them to submit their request in writing. I think you want to be sensitive to ensuring that doesn't bar access to anyone that's not able to do that. Um, but that's permissible. Um, but you're not supposed to require them to sign an authorization form. You don't want to create an unreasonable bar barrier. So that creates kind of two different pathways, right? Mm -hmm. um, where you're, you're coaching clients and helping them understand and train their staff that if it's the patient or the patient's personal representative that's requesting access to PHI, specifically the designated record set, um, they need to be treated differently, both from a cost perspective and also uh, with respect to how the access request is handled, treated differently than a third party that approaches and says, you know, I want Joy Easterwood's <laughs> medical records where you're using that authorization form. And that's kind of one of the easier things, right? That, that people can do um, to show, you know, we're recognizing this guidance. And you know, a, another thing I wanna say about the guidance is one of the great things about the privacy realm is that we have a lot of guidance. Mm -hmm. um, it's not even just written for lawyers, it's really written to help people understand what the expectations are. And I, I teach a, a technology and healthcare compliance class as well. And um, you know, obviously HIPAA is a big part of that. And you know, a large part of the reading that I assign is 
all of the guidance from the Office for Civil Rights because it's helpful. And so, you know, making sure that policies, yes, address each regulation, but also align with that guidance um, <clears throat> answers so many common questions that clients have too, you know. Um, we see a lot of people too only sending things out encrypted, but you know, there's language in there that says that if somebody says, I want things in an unencrypted format, you should advise them of the risk, right? Um, but ultimately, you want to be really sensitive to barring <laughs> access and the ways that, that people are requesting access to their information. So, um, I know I just went on for a while there, Wes, but um, I get it, I, I'm kind of nerdy, I get excited about these topics, right. <laughs> Well, as you know, I'm kind of nerdy about this too, so <laughs> we do well with that one. Um, yeah, so you know, one of the things that you touched on there uh, is that guidance. You know, when did the first real significant guidance come out? I think it was 2016 that OCR published on their webpage an entire multi-page guide all around access. And for many people, that was a game-changing moment because they hadn't considered it in the light of that, in the way that OCR sort of expressed it then. Things like the difference between an access request and an authorized disclosure and, and fees and all kinds of other things. Now, some of this was later uh, some elements were later uh, overturned as a part of the Psyox v. Azar case, but not all of it. You know, much of it still stands, and much of it then is now rolling into a whole new realm, which is uh, this notice of proposed rulemaking around the privacy rule is really touching on all this. And I'd like to talk more about that notice of proposed rulemaking as we get a little bit further in uh, today. But for the moment, um, one of the things that you just said that really comes back to me, and that is the issue of personal representatives. Do you find that, that organizations are struggling to truly identify the rules around personal representation and access, or do you find that they have a good handle on it? Because I see it as a struggle. Yeah, and, and I don't know that that's that's a struggle that can easily be alleviated. I mean, sometimes I help clients uh, by looking at court paperwork, you know, we have to both look at HIPAA and state law, right, with respect to minors and others um, that have legal personal representatives. Um, and to your point, there's also a right to um, direct access to a third party. Um, but I do think that those are more challenging rules um, because you're looking at state laws as well. And so, you know, in some cases it's easier the natural parent of a minor where um, their rights have not been terminated, but in other cases it's not as clear um, and, and court paperwork can change. And, and I think that some of those roles change over time too, right? A, a court might make a decision later that changes who the personal representative or the legal guardian is uh, for example, for a minor. And so that's one that I think um, it's just naturally going to be something that people need to pay close attention to. Obviously, those are areas that uh, different family members can have some controversy around um, and obviously be very upset <laughs> if their records go to the wrong person. And so that's one of those things that um, clients need to think about operationalizing as well and making sure that records um, are up to date 
and that they're saving documentation that clearly indicates who um, the personal representative is, if there is one. And, um, you know, one thing to your point on the guidance, you know, it's been updated too. So it's been kept <clears throat> current and it's available online. And so I think that was a great point, Wes, because, you know, it's not just resolution agreements. Um, if you look at the access guidance from the OCR, there's a summary of the PSYOPs case. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk and, and debate around charges for fees. And so we've talked a lot about access to records, um, but the fees is something that I think we see a lot of. And again, it's one of those things that I, I, I think people are want to comply, um, but you know, we add in state laws as well. And we have to remember that, you know, HIPAA is a federal law. And so um, the guidance even specifically calls it out, right? That Right. You know, even if there's a state law that says you can charge more than what we're saying, you know, we expect you to honor um, the HIPAA requirements. And, you know, I'm in Florida. And so I, I see a lot of different things. And I think that um, medical professionals often turn naturally to their licensure, their licensure board and those rules related to what they can charge for records. And so they're unknowingly thinking um, that they comply. But I will tell you that um, both from the OCR guidance and the fact that a lot of licensure boards even say, you know, you can charge a fee, but we recommend that you don't charge individuals um, or that's our preference uh, for copies of their own records. And so, you know, I always tell people, you know, do you really have to charge an individual or are you? Uh, if it's if it's me asking for my own records, you know, again, different than that third party request. And so, um, you know, we also want to be sure that people aren't barred from getting copies of their records because they don't have the financial means, for example. And so, you know, a good way to to move, <laughs> remove one of the areas of risk of enforcement um, it's just having a policy that allows people to get access to their own records without a charge. Um, and so I think that's something that, you know, as lawyers, we should always be exploring with our clients um, because sometimes it's not even, they're not really, <clears throat> there's not that many requests, for example. And so there's not that large of an impact. Um, but that's one easy way uh, to check off one of the boxes because it's strongly encouraged then you avoid all the confusion around what can we charge. Um, and you know that your patients are getting access to their records without any barriers. Yeah, that fees issue is, is certainly one that has been a problem over time. I, I remember one time asking for 30 pages of my record and the fees they uh, proposed to charge me were $65. For 30 pages and most of those pages were you know short notes so <laughs> that can be a problem um, mm -hmm. you know, now OCR basically said hey if you if you want to avoid a lot of controversy here and the need to construct fees and do those things you can go with this flat rate uh, approach I think it's six dollars and fifty cents what are your thoughts mm -hmm. around that flat rate as a way of recouping some basic costs, but not anything uh, extreme. And, and I think that's with respect to electronic records, but you know, I, I think that that's a business decision, right? Mm 
Um, obviously, it's easier to quantify is what I've seen when you're, you're going through the process with organizations. Um, you know, how are we going to approach this and do our cost analysis and make sure that we're only including things in the fee that we're permitted to under HIPAA? Um, but I do see people utilizing that option a lot. Um, and, and again, I think the analysis should start with, you know, what costs do you really incur um, under the, the availability now of a lot of records being in your EMR? But there are things that cost more and, and take more time, right? We talked about when things don't live in the electronic medical record, or people want things in different formats. And so, you know, I, I think it's a business decision and that, you know, our job is to advise people um, of what their options are, but that includes reminding them that, you know, both at a federal and, and at least here in Florida at a state level, you know, the preference is, um, you know, that you're not charging the individual. If you do, let's be sure that you're um, fitting within this guidance, um, whichever structure you choose to follow. And that's where things get tricky, right? Right, right, right. Because you, you've got to consider the whole picture. It's not just a matter of, well, we can do X and that's the end of it. There's there's a lot of a lot of different factors that play into that. Um, you know, I think back uh, to years and years back, in fact, now that really the very first significant big case uh, in, in healthcare, the biggest fine for a long time or, or a penalty at the time was uh, a case that involved a refusal to give people access, the 43 people access to their records by a healthcare company. Do you recall that case, uh, Signet Health? Honestly, not off the top of my head. Well, that one was one that went all the way up the chain to OCR and you know, a lot of difficulty around that one. But, but it, was, it was the original case that fought the battle of, is this the provider's record or is this the patient's record? And that's where this all kind of starts in my mind to try to shift that, that view. Um, but then when I look at the, at the more recent cases, what I'm seeing in those those 18 that I've seen thus far and, and we've that have been published is a tendency um, to violate the time requirements, not getting things to people in the time that they should have uh, as one of two issues. And I want to hit on that one first and then go to the second issue. Um, we know that the time requirement is 30 days with the possibility of a 30-day extension. That does not mean 60 days, right? It, it means 30, but you can get the extension if you, if you need it and if you follow the rules around that access. But we also know that in, in the notice of proposed rulemaking, they're suggesting reducing that to 15 days for electronic records. What are your thoughts? Uh, is 15 days a reasonable period to be able to provide somebody access to their electronic record? Well, I think that in Florida, you know, um, and other states may have state law requirements as well, where if you receive a request for records, for example, and it's tied to a medical malpractice uh, claim or action, um, you might have to produce things in a faster period of time anyways, right, at a state level. So again, we always have to consider state law as well when timing. But 
you know, a reminder is that you don't just have 30 days, right? You shouldn't be waiting until day 29 to compile the access request. It should be without delay and respond, being responsive. Um, and so theoretically, uh, people should not be waiting 30 days right now. Um, you know, 15 days where it gets complicated or maybe there's a lot of requests that come in and people end up in a bind. Um, you know, that can be challenging, I can foresee, obviously, for, um, you know, especially larger organizations that maybe get a lot of requests. And so, um, with that being said, though, I mean, I have to take the opportunity to remind people <laughs> that um, in the guidance, I think, hits on this, too, in making sure that you should be producing records as fast as possible, um, you know, 30 days should, is really the cap. And so, um, I think I'm sure that that 15-day um, proposal is a tight time frame that people are concerned about. I can see the concern, again, where you're dealing with a, a large request, a lot of records, for example. I mean, it all depends on how many records the person has, you know, for what period of time they're requesting. Um, and so some of those things can take longer, and, and it, it's clear you'll still be entitled um, to, to one extension, but, you know, hopefully, um, hopefully for some of the smaller organizations, at least it won't be a, a huge impact. Um, but I think it, it definitely highlights the ongoing trend, uh, both under the Cures Act and HIPAA, um, to move towards making health information accessible, uh, without delay to individuals. Um, as I as I think through some of the issues that I've seen over the years uh, in in many of the organizations I've assisted, uh, one of the things that I've run into from time to time is a tendency to demand that the individual come in and produce identification uh, or get a notary signed statement or those kinds of things in order to be given access to their record. Um, some thoughts around that? Yeah, you actually read my mind. That's something I wanted to mention <laughs> um, because I do see that a lot. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time uh, you know, with larger organizations, but also the uh, single provider offices. And um, again, I think that they don't necessarily all have an in-house, you know, dedicated full-time privacy officer, right? Um, and, and they're not realizing that there's a lot of ways you can send that form out and receive it to request records. Um, and that having somebody travel into the office um, is not appropriate. It's not necessary. And um, arguably, it could be alleged to be an, uh, a barrier that somebody is having to their health information. It's funny, that actually happened to me when I was like 39 weeks pregnant waiting to um, go into labor and I needed a record and someone wanted to have me like drive really far to their office. And I was like, I'm really pregnant. <laughs> yeah, I try to be nice about things. Um, but I think that's one of the more common er areas um, or misinterpreting that, you know, I can't send things out unencrypted, but I, I think you can provide a, a blank form, right, to people in different ways and whatever um, you can do to try to accommodate and, and be reasonable about helping people get access to their records, um, you want to be sure you're doing. 
And I think that's a great point. I think people overlook it. And they're really, again, they're trying to comply with HIPAA, right? I, they just get a little overcautious, um, kind of out of fear, maybe, that they're going to get in trouble. Um, but, you know, having somebody drive into the office to request their and pick up their records uh, is definitely an area that you don't want to be going into, um, you know, for HIPAA, but also because it's also not the right thing to do by patients, right? Right. Right. Uh, yeah, that or, or uh, demanding that uh, they go and get a notarization, uh, which then in, may in some cases uh, incur a cost uh, to the individual. Right. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of ways that you can create a barrier. Um, so as, as you are advising your patients, or sorry, your clients, you're focused on how do you reduce those barriers? That's what I'm hearing is, is, is consider the ways that the barriers can get in there and, and what you can do to reduce it. Yeah. And I think it's just developing because I do see even places with those full-time in-house people, right. That, that have good knowledge and they look at the OCR guidance, but I think it's being sensitive to identifying areas where your office staff might be in engaging in a process, a practice, right. That's making it harder for people to get access to their records. Um, and, and being on the lookout for that, because again, it's, it's not a, in most cases, right. It's not a, um, intentional act. It's something that maybe a new person comes in and they don't understand the requirements. Um, but it's definitely a, an area that's specific in the access guidance. Um, and so you want to be sensitive and when you're doing overall privacy reviews, be looking for things that, um, you know, are potential barriers to people making sure um, that all of the various items in, in the access guidance are, are being honored. Right. So having access to the access guidance is probably the first thing that you want to ensure that you have is, is that you've read it and understand what the intent here is rather than simply what the HIPAA law says. I've, I've often found that you know, HIPAA says do X, but it's that guidance, it's those preambles to the to the regulation, and it's the guidance that's been published since then that becomes really critical uh, to giving context to all of this and and helping people understand how to do this more effectively. Um, I've mentioned earlier uh, that, uh, you know, we have the, the notice of proposed rulemaking around privacy, 75 pages of that guidance is all around access. We have the, the uh, CARES Act and the information blocking rule that is now in effect. Uh, and we have the, the access and high interest from OCR. I think of all of this as kind of a perfect storm the world is continuing to change, that we can't just uh, say, well, HIPAA says, therefore, or the, the Cures Act says, therefore, that we've got to consider all of this in context. And depending on what happens with the uh, notice of proposed rulemaking, you know, we could see some significant changes to our practices and policies and procedures and those kinds of things have to happen uh, in the future as well. How do you see all of that as it's coming together in your world? Yeah, and so I think that's on point for <clears throat> the audience today as well, because, you know, it's AHLA. So we do, 
you know, we might see a client at one point in, in time, right, and assist them with preparing privacy policies. Um, and we had some big changes back in 2013, right? And, and there were a lot of steps that people had to take, updating business associate agreements to come into compliance. Um, and, you know, we always have to consider state law as well. So where are you doing business? Where are your patients located, right? As privacy lawyers uh, from a breach perspective, but also a day-to-day -day operations. Um, and things like personal representative, things like costs, um, making sure that you're complying and things like minors as well, making sure that you're complying with state law, HIPAA, and now we have the Cures Act. And so, you know, <laughs> um, I know that it can be overwhelming for some of our clients as well. You know, now there's this information blocking portal uh, where somebody can submit a, a complaint uh, related to not getting access to their information. Um, and so we have a lot of moving parts. And now we have the proposed changes to the, the privacy rule. And so that does mean, right, that when writing policies and providing them to our clients, we need to be communicating um, about uh, the Cures Act and the compliance deadlines that have already come to fruition. And then the pieces, and again, depending on who the client is, right? If they're an EMR vendor or another type of, um, they're, maybe they're a certified EMR or they're an HIE, but maybe they're a provider. And so, and then what type of provider, right? Are they a hospital? Um, asking all of those questions when you're preparing those documents and, and walking through them with your clients with the goal also of educating them, right? And helping them do things um, in a compliant fashion on a day-to-day -day basis and reminding them that there is a proposed rule out there. Um, you're giving them a present state right now, following up with them to update things when needed. And, and I have made changes um, to the policies that I help prepare for our clients uh, related to the CARES Act as well. And so um, obviously everybody needs to be watching the final outcome of the privacy rule. And one thing we can prepare our clients for is, hey, we've been talking a lot about access, right? And working together, um, not just on protecting PHI from a privacy and security perspective uh, and breach perspective, but also uh, this access initiative and having detailed policies that people can pull out, right? And reference when things happen. Um, and now we need to be aware um, of these other laws and changes as you go forward. And so trying to pull all those pieces together and simplify those in a manner that um, the clients can understand. And in a lot of ways, the outcome of that is, is meaningful policies, right? Um, and so I think the most important part is letting our clients know that the move towards ensuring that people have access to their health information, um, it's only getting stronger and it's something to continue to be prepared for, help make sure your workforce is aware of it, right? Again, because I think that we see and we have so many things like ransomware attacks happening and large breaches that the natural human tendency is to kind of lock all the doors, right? Around all of your PHI, but you really have to be aware of um, the movement in the healthcare sector with respect to access to PHI under HIPAA um, as it is right now under the Cures Act and also under uh, whatever the final outcome will be um, on the privacy rule, which, which we can expect definitely those access rights to only be strengthened. Right, right. Yeah, you, you hit on one where there's a bit of a nuance that I've, I've been thinking about of late. 
and, and that is uh, closing the door um, firmly. And the case that I think of uh, is, is a minor who has a right under state law to consent to a healthcare process or procedure. Reproductive care is usually one of the biggies. Um, and, and how in some facilities, when that person reaches the point in time at which that can occur, or when they have engaged in that kind of care, they slam the door to anyone else having access to that record except for the minor themselves. So it's a complex kind of an issue that we have to think through. The state law considerations are absolutely uh, in play there. Uh, a lot of other factors, like uh, with the with the information blocking side of things, if you slam the door so that only the minor now has access, what happens to the parental personal representative rights to all the other information? You know, there's a lot of factors in play. Um, so I think it's an interesting world to continue to work in. <laughs> and, and it's certainly not something that's going away anytime soon that, uh, but you hit on one point that I want to come back around to, and that is, you know, you talked about setting up the policies and procedures and making sure that the workforce is aware. That's the training component. And I think that's sometimes where we get lost in, in the world of HIPAA is this is that I've seen many training programs that focus on this is HIPAA, Public Law 104-101, you know, instituted in 1996 by. And that's just the wrong approach really for training because the training should be about the policies and procedures that organization and that individual have to follow. So I'll just kind of throw that out there as, uh, as a Wes's thought. Do you have any additional context you would add to that around training? And, and yeah, and I think it's, there's a distinction, right? When you're an in-house lawyer, um, or privacy officer, you have a lot of ability to look at everything that you're doing and time it right, right? And those of us that are now in private practice, you know, um, we get to see what our clients want to share with us. Often we're in our own building um, and not where the covered entity is. And so um, anytime somebody says, oh yeah, we have HIPAA training, <laughs> right. um, I really try to get them to let me see it, right? Because um, they get things from a lot of different places. It, they, it could be a document that was prepared before the 2013 changes. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, if we're working on policies with them, let's follow up with training. Um, because hopefully you've made good adjustments in the policies and you want them to really be meaningful. And training is the way to do it. And, um, you know, I still do over the past year, it's been more recorded or webinar, right? But, but going to the facility and sitting down with the workforce and, and I do training as well, like you do, Wes. And, you know, you really see uh, tailored training is very effective and seeing people nod their heads. Oh, you know, you see the light bulbs go off. And that's really how you can prevent, um, hopefully, um, ending up in, in the news, hopefully, right? Um, and, and also making sure that you're, you're actually complying when you're wanting to. And so, um, you know, reminding people too to keep copies, uh, send reminders and then save a copy so that you have that in your records and what the HIPAA retention requirements are. But, you know, sometimes you see people that are training on the wrong things, right? That are clearly right. inconsistent always require an authorization or, or they're not really sending the current message on the current state of things 
um, in their training and they're training on how to do things wrong instead of right. So I think as, as attorneys, whether in-house or the private sector, taking a look at training is a really critical piece if you're doing some of that proactive work um, with your clients. And if they're going to do the training, that's great as well. But, you know, hey, you might want to really hit on these important topics. And of course, things like phishing emails, um, don't click the link type of things. There's things that, you know, are most prone to human error or mistakes in how they're processing things, um, things that people will pay attention to and hopefully take something away from the training. Yeah. Um, we've covered a lot of ground here in the last 30 or so minutes, and I do want to wrap this up, but before I do, uh, I just want to ask, are there any other tools or, or subjects that you think are really critical to uh, put out to the audience today? Well, Wes, you know I can talk for a really long time. Um, so I do think we hit on some of the most important things. And again, I think, um, you know, as attorneys, obviously we want to follow the regulations, but there's, there's helpful tools, again, that um, our clients might not be aware of um, in the guidance that we should be looking at holistically and monitoring the different compliance dates that might come out and proactively sharing that information with our clients. And this can go to this website too, because there's a lot of things out there that help them implement the regulations so that they're calling their lawyers, not only if they're in trouble, right, or they've made, after they've made a mistake and sent something to the wrong place, um, but they get in the habit of, of looking at the guidance or calling somebody for help before they do things, um, which ultimately will have a better outcome for them and their patients. Um, and so, again, I think that's most important to, uh, even if you're working with clients on breach events, hey, let's talk about policies. And there's this other really important initiative out there um, because we know you're terrified of breaches now, but you can't forget about these other items. Right. I think that was a really good way to wrap it up. Uh, so with that, um, I'll just I'll just say that uh, to the audience, I hope that uh, there are sparks that have occurred from this uh, from this podcast today that cause you to look at how you're advising your clients and and what you can do to help them do the right thing and not just do the legal thing. You know, there's sometimes a subtle difference between those two states. Um, and, and Joy, I want to thank you. It was a real pleasure to spend this time talking with you again. Uh, and uh, let's do it again sometime. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we were able to connect. And uh, I appreciate you guys having me participate today. All right. Well, on behalf of Joy Easterwood uh, from Johnson Pope and myself from Clearwater, I thank you. And, and on behalf of AHLA, I, I thank you for your time today. And uh, so long and have a great day, everyone. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.